0: Take those Bibles out. You can open them up to Acts 23. And we have uh, just the narrative of Paul's travelings that uh, may seem like tough passages for Bible study, but you know what? They're not redundant to us. And Always remember what Paul tells Timothy, all scriptures inspired by God and is profitable uh, for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, training of all righteousness and equipping us for every good work. And, uh, you know, it's here in chapter uh, 23 that we see just Paul's theology being hammered out on the anvil of his experiences. And the things that uh, the Holy Spirit is going to move him to write in the book of, well, in all of the epistles, you know, these are things that he himself has had to live out. And things that we see him live out in, in the book of Acts, which is history, are things that in some way we are going to also live out if we're going to live an, a Paul the Apostle type of life, which is really just a New Testament Christian life. Uh, a friend of mine uh, years ago uh, he just used to say people people say that you know the book of acts is radical christianity it's not radical christianity it's just christianity it's how the lord wants us to be living and and he's lived that way and he gives us the power to live that way and so you know we have paul go before us and and in a way he just says hey follow me as i i follow christ and We're going to just see from chapter 20 and on through the rest of the book that Paul's going to go through much opposition for the gospel's sake, especially from the Jews, chapter 20 through 23, 24. We're in 23 today. Uh, Last time we were together in Acts, we saw just these same Jews accused him of being opposed to the law of God and the temple of God and the customs and the traditions and paul actually went to great measures to show that he valued these things and that they point to jesus that he wasn't opposed to them that he also was jewish and appreciated the things that he was raised in but the end wasn't those things in themselves the end is in jesus christ and so uh these jews would hate paul and falsely accuse him but mostly because they hated jesus they're really just treating Paul the same way that they treated Jesus. And, you know, they say, basically, you know, we hate that type of living and we hate Jesus. Uh, we like, similar to people in our day and age, you know, we like those types of religions that have no exclusive claims. and uh, But anyone that says there's a way, a truth, and a life, then, you know what, we're against That. And if you travel to other countries, uh, remember last week we looked at the 1040 window on a map, North Africa, South and Southeast Asia. Uh, those are places where people, they mention the name of Jesus and they're gonna take a, they're gonna catch a rock, they're gonna catch a brick, uh, they're gonna catch a machete. And, um, and they understand that suffering happens if we 're going to live for Jesus, and Jesus told us in John fifteen eighteen if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before uh, it hated you and so um, and so just we 're going to see Paul going through that his trials begin in the book of Acts as far as legal trials and being before judges and magistrates and uh, in acts twenty two if you just go back to the end of the last chapter we 're looking at verse thirty. We see that uh, uh, a Roman commander who was in charge of Paul's imprisonment at the moment the next day because he wanted to know for certain why Paul was accused by the Jews. He released Paul from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear And brought Paul down and set him before him. And so this Roman commander, you know, he is trying to do his job right. And there's this great tumult right outside of his fortress there on the um, temple mount. There's all kinds of commotion. There's a mob. There's a riot. He it's his job to stop the riot. He finds that Paul is at the center of it, though not the cause of it. And uh, and he's trying to figure out, why are they so mad at you? What have you done? Are you some kind of a rebel? Are you some kind of an assassin? Uh, Are you really trying to break their law? Is it a theological issue or a legal issue or a political issue? He's trying to figure all this stuff out. And he's starting to find that, you know, these claims of the Jews, they don't have much ground. You know what? I better go before their Supreme Court and have them try this guy. And we'll see if there's anything that I'm missing here. So he brings Paul before the, what's called the Sanhedrin, which was like the Jewish Supreme Court uh, of the day. And then going on into chapter 23, we'll see him stand before this court and it doesn't last long. Uh, You know, you watch C-SPAN or you watch kind of what goes on in some of our, uh, you know, congressional hearings and, Um, and man, things can take a turn real quick. I remember a few years ago, Nepal, you know, that we love so much and follow, uh, they were trying to create a constitution and, uh, for a long time, they just couldn't, you know, the different parties couldn't even talk to each other. So there was just really no constitution, not much real law, not much real, much of anything and everything was very vague and out there. And finally, they were able to come together. After many years, all these parties agreed, we need to come together. We need to create a constitution. And like within the first hour of deliberation, there was a riot. Guys are jumping over tables and punching each other and throwing chairs at each other. And it just didn't last long, sadly. Uh, eventually, they did get together again and create that constitution. But uh, here we see Paul's going to just, he's going to say about one sentence or two. And uh, it's, it's just gonna trigger them, you know, as, as it happened last week as well. So 23 1, then Paul looking earnestly at the council said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And so Paul's he's gonna look, he's gonna stand, and he's gonna speak, and and uh and and he just speaks this great phrase concerning his conscience, um, that he's lived in good conscience, and, and really it's It speaks of, you know, his life. He thought he was always doing the Lord a favor, a service. He found out he was on the wrong track on the road to Damascus. Once he was born again, he continued just his life was about the service of the Lord. He found out in Damascus that it was about the service (laughs) of the gospel. And he's lived in all good conscience before the Lord until the day that he's standing there in front of the Sanhedrin. And I just wonder how many of us can say such a thing. Oh, I've lived in all good conscience before the Lord until this day. Uh, Micah chapter six, verse eight says, he's shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And really that is something that as we follow after that, uh, then we know that we can have that uh, conscience as well that is clean. And we also know that that. Clean conscience is a gift uh, by what Jesus has done on the cross Uh, when he forgives us of our sin because of the blood that he shed. Uh, Years ago, I was uh, just looking up uh, just some things regarding our conscience and found that uh, the U.S. government, Department of the Treasury, has what's called the Conscience Fund. The Conscience Fund, and it's one of three gift funds maintained by the government And it's used for voluntary contributions from people who have stolen and defrauded the United States government. The fund was created back in 1811, and it's uh, received five dollars in its first year. Just somebody was like, "Oh, I know, I've done something." You know, five dollars. But over um, $5.7 million came into the Conscience Fund during its first 175 years. So it just shows you that people, you know, they get paid under the table and they try to get this and, you know, and this and that and their taxes and just try to kind of be a little bit cheap and cheating. And uh, but just over time, they're like, man, that was wrong. This is wrong. And they give to the Conscience Fund. And you, too, could give to the U.S. Conscience Fund as as uh, April's coming up. And get that temporary guilt off of your mind. Or, Chris, or uh, Dustin, he's going to get the link right now. No, I'm just kidding. But that just scratches the surface. How do you really have a clean conscience? Hebrews, there's two passages in Hebrews that always come to my mind. Hebrews 9.13 tells us that if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean sacrifice or sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know, modern day, you might paraphrase that passage to say, hey, you know, if, uh, a five dollar donation to the U.S. Department of Treasury's Conscience Fund it serves as a sprinkling, you know, as a as a temporary cleansing of your conscience. How much more would the blood of the Creator God is a ransom price to forgive you? How much more that does that do such a more deep clean uh, over your heart, mind, and spirit? And I just love that phrase; it cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then uh, the next chapter in Hebrews ten twenty one tells us that we have a high priest over the house of God. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And just knowing that what our high priest Jesus has done and offering himself, there's just that that cleansing and that sprinkling and that just the washing away of our sins. And so Paul just speaks this wonderful phrase starting out, you know, because remember they're accusing him, they're accusing him of hating the law and, you know, uh, sedition against the temple and the temple mount and the customs and all of the, and even taking a Gentile up on the temple mount and into the inner courts, which was, you know, punishable by death. And, Paul's just like, you guys bring all these accusations, but you know what? I can stand before the Lord and I've got a clean conscience. It's okay. You know, and, and that seems like a good way to open up the deliberation, right? A good way to open up the trial. Well, look at verse two, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So, so far it's going well, right? (laughs) Um, uh, but I like what Marshall said. He says, then a somewhat bizarre interruption follows. <laughs> Just a full-on sucker punch to the face. That's not right, you know. But it, it is what they have always done to the prophets of the Lord. Uh, they struck Micaiah Mach- and Jeremiah. They, they struck Jesus, you remember. And they would strike Paul. Or as one translation says, cuff him on the mouth. You know, they're going to cuff him on the mouth. They're going to strike him right here. This was at the order of the high priest Ananias. Doesn't sound very high priestly, does it? Anybody read through the Old Testament yet this year in your Bible reading plan and you know you're reading Exodus, you're reading Leviticus, you're reading of the high priests and the garments that they wear and the service of the Lord in the temple and, and you know, I like those guys. I like reading about that. It's like a good old grandpa, you know, that just with the white beard that you can just snuggle up to and he's helping you take care of your sin and all of that and then he just full on is like punch him in the face and you're like, whoa, grandpa, you know. Some of us have had grandpas. Yeah, that's about right. Yep. That's uh, got the old codger in him just a little bit there. Uh, so they cut him on the mouth. Now, the high priest Ananias was one, one man called him a thoroughly unsavory character, kind of a mobster like priest. He was known to be wicked he was known to take pro, uh, bribes from both the Romans and the Jews. Josephus described him as, quote, an insolent and quick-tempered character, a great hoarder up of money, even taking away the tithes that belonged to the priests by violence. This is the guy. This is the high priest there uh, at the time of Paul. He would be arrested by the Romans for corruption he 'd be struck down as his own house burned to the ground in a rebellion that was a pro Roman Jewish guerrilla mob that was led by his own son around sixty six Ananias understood paul 's words here you know it, what is what 's the big deal What ruffles the feathers of Ananias so much uh, I, I believe that it is in what i 've read that Paul is speaking that because of the blood of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, I have that permanent washing away of my sin and a clean conscience that you've never had by resting in the blood of bulls and goats. And that was like, so you're saying that you're righteous and I'm not? I'm going to punch you. Okay, so it was an offense to Ananias there. Um, you know Calvin speaking regarding Ananias says the Lord allows wicked people to be so carried away by Satan that they abandon all pretense of fairness and moderation, and they just sucker punch. Rory's adding to John Calvin there, but uh, so verse three tells us, oh, Paul took the licking and kept on ticking. You know uh, he essentially says, oh, it's okay. My Lord has said to turn the other cheek. No, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Wow. Bit of an outburst there, right? Uh, he, he, He has what's called, I learned this word yesterday, a riposte. A reposte, which is a quick, clever reply to an insult or criticism. If anyone here's ever done fencing, and I'm not talking about barbed wire fencing, uh, I'm talking about the jousting—you know, the sword fighting. Uh, a reposte is is used as a quick return thrust following a parry, and so essentially, it was out before Paul even knew it. And this is something that you know, helps us realize that Paul was both human and sinful and that we don't need to credit him with some sort of sinless perfection that he himself never claimed. Yes. Do we turn the other cheek? Yes, we do that. And yet sometimes we get slapped around. And the first thing that our flesh knows to do is snarl and bite back. It happened to me this week. Just everything's going completely and totally fine. And in a breath, there's the bite, you know? And, and I wonder if later on the night when Paul lays his head on his straw prison pillow, if his conscience begins thinking through the the events of the day and that maybe came up in his clean conscience that he has that maybe that's not exactly how I should have responded to that. Uh, you know, first of all, talking about how, you know, you're going to be struck. You want to strike? You're going to be struck, Strike to the stricken, you know, Chinese chicken, you know, or whatever. And, uh, you know what else? You know what you are? You're a whitewashed wall is what you are, all right? And so when he speaks of the whitewashed wall, what's he speaking of? Most of us would know. He's speaking about hypocrisy. Jesus himself, now Jesus would call the Pharisees a whitewashed wall, a whitewashed tomb. You know what, in Matthew twenty three twenty seven, where Jesus is cursing the Pharisees, just religious people. It's essentially the Sanhedrin. And, and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. This is a great picture, Jesus says. He says, you are so religious with your hoity-toity religion, marching around with your robes and your phylacteries and your, you know, big prayers on the street corners. He says, but you know what? You're like that tomb that people try to decorate on the outside as a memorial, But inside, there's nothing pretty about what's going on inside that tomb. It's full of decay and corruption and death. And that's you. Jesus says also in the same passage, you're like a cup or a bowl that, oh yeah, we cleaned the outside of the bowl where no food ever touches, you know. But the inside of the bowl, it's still dirty on the inside. And that the Pharisees and Ananias needed to be cleansed on the inside. Now, in Ezekiel 13, we hear, the prophets they were like, remember this when we fasted this year. The prophets were like uh, to to quote marshall uh, they were a uh, daubed a rickety wall with whitewash, fondly imagined that this would make it stronger, you know, as if you know you have a fence falling down around your house, you know, and you're like, hey, let's paint it and that crust of the paint'll kind of help hold it together just a little bit, you know? And so, you know, Paul is speaking regarding the uh, the hypocrisy of the Sanhedrin and especially the high priest at the moment. And just some lessons of life here that Paul probably was thinking of later on in his prison cell is Proverbs fifteen one, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And that was my um occasion this week you know just things going well with the family and the children and special time in the word and in prayer and just trying to do what we could to serve one another and then just one word of correction that my flesh and my ego didn't like and I just snarled at my wife like a coyote with his foot in the trap you know and uh and just you know it's just hard to come back from that sometimes you know and just uh, frustration and anger, and then you're spending time before the Lord, and he has to do that softening. But we and Paul can look at jesus's example, who in his trial before the same group, John 18 19, the high priest asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me ask those who've heard me and have said to them indeed they know what I said And when he'd said these things one of the officers who stood by struck jesus with the palm of his hand saying Do you answer the high priest like that? And jesus answered him if i've spoken evil bear witness of the evil But if well, why do you strike me? And so you see the difference between jesus answering and god will strike you back you big old hypocrite, you know, and, uh, the tone might, I might be taking a little liberty in the tone, but, but maybe not, you know? Um, and so in verse 20, uh, verse four, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know brethren that he was the high priest for it is written. You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. And so there is a neat what appears to be like an apology and some humility and i always think of a brazilian friend of mine you know as he was learning english and he would always say i did not know that was the guy you know or something i did not know that was the man you know and it, uh, paul's like i did not know that was the guy and there's a few reasons why paul's statement it seems a little unbelievable they're in the sanhedrin uh there's the high priest it's ananias like come on paul you know you, you seem like such a good Jew, you know, like you don't know who the high priest is. Some think that this may have been like an informal meeting of the Sanhedrin. And so in a sense, guys were there in their blue jeans and t-shirts, if you will. So they weren't really in the garb of of their duties. And so uh, that could have escaped recognition on Paul's part. Uh, others maybe speak to the, the babble of the voices in the court. Paul wasn't sure who had given that command to strike him and so it was kind of a you know just like with jesus it was an officer that struck him there of the court so maybe maybe that's who it was it was somebody else uh third interpretation was that paul was speaking sarcasm as if to say i didn't realize that a man such as you could be a high priest maybe he was saying that like uh a bit sarcastically and then john stott who's so helpful in many things uh his understanding in his opinion is that with Paul's very bad vision that he had, um, he was just seeing kind of the garments and maybe the white priestly garment, uh, and he was speaking, like I didn't know that uh, that, that was you. you, Just it all was kind of whitewash out there, and if you've got bad vision, it's amazing how everything can kind of blur together. You probably know better than me, but um, I do need my glasses often. So Paul shows some immediate humility and what appears to be some repentance of the condemning response. Um, but at the same time, while we are to turn the other cheek, that doesn't erase the the synonymous or the, the at the same time need to correct those who are evil and to speak righteousness where unrighteousness and injustice would be taking place. Uh, looking at verses six through eight. And when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged. And when he'd said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there's no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees Uh, confess both. So Paul is just giving, you know, a real quick testimony. Uh, There's a a bigger testimony in the previous chapter and many of his testimonies are longer. I think there's three previous ones in the book of Acts. And uh, it's always good if you're going on a mission trip or even as you go out into the world to be able to summarize what Jesus has done for you and in your life in 30 seconds. And um, NPR, did uh, a special uh, podcast where they went out on the street and they just interviewed people and they would just say simply, just uh, kind of like a This American Life type of a thing and like, hey, and they just interviewed and they said, hey, summarize your life for me in 30 seconds. And what was Paul's? You know, hey, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day, you know, or things like that. Or concerning the testimony of the resurrection. That's what I'm known for. Something like that. What would yours be? Well, for the NPR podcast, one Italian guy said, it started out bad and it got worse. <laughs> and, and that was it. Uh, so w- what is your testimony? There's some wisdom. Some have said wisdom intact in Paul's defense. That's what I've always had written down. There's wisdom intact in Paul's defense. He knows who his accusers are and he pits them against each other. Something that you would see a really good lawyer do on law and order or something. You know your accusers? You know these two guys? They're enemies of one another. I'm their enemy, so that's made them best friends. But I'm going to pull the rug out from under them, and I'm going to pit them against each other by bringing up the resurrection. Because there on the Sanhedrin, you've got Pharisees and Sadducees. And as the old Sunday school quip tells us, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels and they didn't believe in the spiritual realm or a heaven or an afterlife. But the Pharisees, they're all on the same panel. Uh, they believe in both. And so Paul used that to his benefit. And it was Alistair Begg that pointed out, you know, that picture of Paul going to bed this night and laying his head on his straw prison pillow and thinking about the day and thinking about, you know, his, uh, his. I think it was called a respite, you know, or, or what was it? A re, I, I can't remember. It was a new word to me yesterday. His, his fencing, a repose. Thank you. Someone's independent. did you do fencing? Oh, wait, you're just rancher. You do fencing. Yeah, okay. Um, but you do repost the fences sometimes, H-braces and what? Okay, anyways. Uh, so Paul's, you know, Paul's quippy. He's like, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that, Lord. Oh, just forgive me for just snarling at the, high priest there might have been a, a better attack there and and then uh man I, I get this audience in front of the sanhedrin and right away what do i do i just drop the bomb you know in there that's just like you know what you guys you got paul out you know resurrection you know he's like see you guys later you know he's like oh man maybe that was and it was alistair beg that just mentioned that maybe that also was something that was too quick of an out uh, rather than a care for the souls of the people that he was with. Maybe, maybe these are things that Paul might think about, uh, there at night, but he does bring the focus around to what the trial is actually about. It's about Jesus. It's not about really the customs. Like you guys hate me because I'm with Jesus. And so verse nine, then there arose a loud outcry. So here's, here's where that outburst, that bomb happens. I kind of jumped the gun on that for you. But Uh, And the scribes of the Pharisees party arose and protested saying, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So did you see what he did? Like he talks about the resurrection and that stirs up those emotions in the Pharisees. And they're like, Well, this guy believes in the spiritual realm, so he didn't even do anything wrong, you know. Um, Probably some spirit or angel spoke to him. And then the Sadducees is like, there are no spirits or angels, right? Um, And so uh, verse uh, 10 tells us, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them. And bring him into the barracks. So it's kind of interesting because it seems that you've got the Pharisees yanking him on this side. Saying there's no fault in him. Probably had an angel or spirit speak to him. We know that Jesus, right, appeared to him. And then over on this side, these guys want to kill him. And the commander, the Roman that put him in there to figure out what's, what is the hubbub about with this guy? He's got to get him out of there lest he be pulled to pieces. And so uh, verse 11, the story goes on and, and the drama unfolds, the plot. There's a plot against Paul. <laughs> verse 11 tells us the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And so before this uh, treachery is gonna happen and a plot unfolds, before Paul even hears about it, he has this comforting word, uh, assurance from the Lord. Um, the Lord stood by him that night. Uh, and so just a few things. Jesus knew Paul's name and spoke Paul's name. You know, the Lord knows your name as well, cares just as much for you. Whenever Jesus speaks our name, it comforts us and revives us to know that he remembers us in our darkest hour uh, you'll notice that it's, it says that he stood by Paul and then in a previous account, a few chapters ago, Acts 18, it was in a vision or a dream that Jesus stood with Paul in the night where he said, don't be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city You know, that's the great commission. When Jesus gives us the great commission to go to the nations and preach the gospel, he ends the great commission with, and lo, I am with you, even to the ends of the age. Is that how you live your life? Do you walk through your day just remembering that he is with you? He's with you. And in the context, especially of opening up your mouth and sharing the gospel, even if it means persecution, he's with you even to the last day, even till the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5 says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so be of good cheer, Jesus tells Paul. Why Why would Jesus tell Paul be of good cheer? Probably because he wasn't in good cheer, huh? Probably was a little discouraged that night as he went to his prison cell, feeling sad and discouraged by the event and the way things Turned out there at the Sanhedrin. I <clears throat> uh, didn't do my vocal warm ups as I usually get to do in the morning. <clears throat> you guys want to do vocal warm ups together? It's kind of a nice little icebreaker game that I know. Okay. Uh, so for as you've testified of me in Jerusalem, and here's the future promise from the Lord, so you'll also testify and witness of me in Rome. So uh, we know that this would encourage Paul in two ways. First of all, the Lord had more ministry for Paul to do. That's an encouraging thing to remember the call on your life and the purpose that he's given you and that he's got a plan for you. Secondly, Jesus will fulfill Paul's desire to go uh, to Rome. Paul had such a desire. And you see here that that was also the Lord's desire for Paul, that he would go to Rome. And so by the end of our chapter, that journey will begin in a roundabout way heading to Rome. Looking at verses 12 through 15 here. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we've bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we've killed Paul. Unless it gets into like the 12 to 15 hour mark, then we'll probably have to eat. So just letting you know that part, you know, it's a big, you know, their zeal is shown in their big pact that they make here. And I don't know, I don't want to spoil the story, but they don't end up killing him. So either they all died of starvation or they did what the Jews would do in the Bible where Jesus tells them, you guys like to make a lot of vows and then create these loopholes after the fact that get you out of your vows. And really, the Lord isn't against us making vows and promises and covenants. Those are biblical things we know. Um, but what he's against is when we go into those things, knowing full well we're not going to keep them. And so we go ahead and, uh, and after the fact, we create these loopholes and strategies uh, to, uh, to deceive and to get out of it. Uh, and so here they uh, do really the same thing. They're like, oh yeah, we're not going to eat until we kill him. Um, and so now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, that Paul come down again tomorrow as though you're going to make further inquiries among him. Uh, but we're ready to kill him before he comes near. And so the Jews know that they're not going to get any legal traction to kill Paul, and so if they're going to kill him, it's going to have to be on a back road in an alley, Julius Caesar style, you know. And uh, and so there's this there's this pact that's formed, and but with the pact comes a great Jesus style intervention, and really the rest of the Book of Acts is the fulfillment of Jesus's promise that night, taking Paul to Rome to testify of Jesus. And you know, that's what the Lord does. He sovereignly accomplishes his purpose supernaturally, but sometimes it's in a very natural way how he does that. And so check out this story here, um, the natural way that God supernaturally protects Paul from this pact. And so look at verse 16. When Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So we don't know anything about this nephew, except that he's Paul's sister's son. And somehow he's around the room where the you know, this was being told. So he hears of the plot. And then somehow he's also able to get into, you know, the the place where Paul's arrested and under arrest whether it's a cell or whatever and so somehow like just in god's sovereignty he's supernaturally working in a very natural way just through a nephew who overhears and then comes and tells Uh, it was john stott that said even the most careful and cunning of human plans cannot succeed if god opposes them no weapon forged against him will triumph And on this occasion, God's providential intervention involves Paul's nephew. Okay, we're going to read 17 through 24. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand and went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? So think of all the legal, you know, jail, bail, bonds, visitors, visiting in the prison, plexiglass, telephone through the window, whatever. Think of all the stuff that you know or what you might imagine and how incredible it is that that this nephew is given such an audience from prisoner to commander and, uh, So what is it that you have to tell me? Verse 20, and he said, as though they were going to inquire more fully about, uh, and he said, I'm sorry, I skipped a line, you guys. Uh, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who've bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they've killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. Uh, You know, Paul doesn't seem really all that worried about it because he remembers Jesus's promise and he's already watching how the Lord is having favor over the situation. Verse 23, and he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So about 472 Roman soldiers, this is believed to be half of the force that was in Jerusalem, would accompany Paul on his 47-mile trek or ride. This is what you call an entourage, my friend. I mean, imagine these days seeing, you know, you see... 20 Humvees going down the road at the same time, and you're like, ooh, what is happening, you know? Imagine just 427 soldiers, some important prisoner uh, or person is being transported, and just the Lord safely taking Paul... Uh, to essentially the harbor that he would head to Rome from. And if you've been to Israel, and if you were with me this last November when we went to Israel, you know where Caesarea is, right? Caesarea Martipa, the, the Caesarea by the sea. And we've driven that drive the, the night we went back to the airport from uh, from Jerusalem to Joppa or Tel Aviv. It's very, very quick, similar road there that you would take. <clears throat> and so uh, John MacArthur Jr. wrote, The soldiers were legionnaires, the elite soldiers of the Roman army. The horsemen were from the garrison's cavalry detachment. And the spearmen or javelin throwers were soldiers less heavily armed than the legionnaires. The entire Roman force of Jerusalem consisted of a single cohort of up to a thousand soldiers. The importance that the commander Lysias attached to his prisoner is evidenced by the sending approximately half of the force to protect him. It's something that we see here. I mean, when you do think of it as, man, if we saw 20 to 100 to 200 Hummers and armored personnel carriers and all of those things, going down the freeway or going down the road with lights flashing and soldiers armed. And, you know, you would think something is unfolding in the world drama right now that's big. And there was something big. God right now was taking the message to the Gentiles and getting the gospel to Rome in a very long and roundabout way. It would end up being two years, over two years of trials before Paul would make it. But he would be going. And right now, he's going that way. A lot of times when I'm overseas, and I, um, this last couple of weeks was in Nepal, uh, I called my family. And it was the day before we left to come home and start trekking down the mountain, taking the Jeep ride back to Kathmandu, to the airport, plane ride home, getting home. I always tell my family, from this point on, I'm coming towards you, like the, it feels like that the the glue between us has been stretched for two weeks, you know. But starting now, that is going to be. We're get we're the whole way. I'm working on coming home to you, and I'll tell my kids that. And from this point on, you guys, Paul is moving towards Rome, even though it's going to take two and a half years or so for him to get there. He's heading that direction. We're going to wrap it up because it's going to it's going to go uh, pretty fast here. Twenty six. Uh, he, he sent a, uh, a letter provided mounts and, uh, brought him safely before Felix, the governor. Um, he would write in verse 26, a a letter to that governor writing Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. And for the sake of time, we'll, I'll save you all the details about Felix until next week when we see him actually stand, um, before Felix. And then, uh, that was twenty six. Looking at 27, uh, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told to me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So if you guys will set your things aside and then stand, uh, we'll close out in a song here.